uh, I want to talk for a few moments tonight about Paul's joy. Uh, a lot of things going on in our, our nation. A lot of uh, statistics that makes us sad. Uh, I've, I've become aware of a new term that's been given to us, and that is uh, white Christian Nationalists. I just told somebody a minute ago, white Christian nationalists, that's what we are. Uh, we're enemies of the United States. Uh, conservative Christians is what that what that's for. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's enough to make a person sad when you think about it. Uh, a lot of the things that are going on, the attitudes, how they shifted, boys or girls, girls, boys, and some or both, I don't know. It's nuts. So many things going on. Good is ba or good is evil, and evil is good. Uh, it, it, actually, it's things that's always going on throughout history. It's nothing new. It's really nothing new. Uh, it's just new to us, I guess. At least during my generation, it's something new. It's a it's a sad state of affairs, I think, and. Uh, Got all kinds of uh, wolves barking at the door right now. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about Paul's joy. I always go to Paul when I need a little boost. Uh, Paul always gives me a little boost. Uh, a lot of the uh, ministers in the uh, Bible, uh, they kind of suck the life out of you. But uh, Paul's one that uh, he gives, uh, he puts some air in our balloon and makes it possible for us to float. Uh, Solomon was almost the opposite. Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, his summary was vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It seems like uh, Solomon thought it was useless. The situation was hopeless, uh, at least in his younger years. Uh, things were just, just going to pieces and uh, all was lost because... Uh, People have become uh, so so vain, so uh, well worthless. Basically, is what he talks about throughout Ecclesiastes. Well, Paul, whatever whatever Solomon was to the dark side of us, uh, Paul was just the opposite. Uh, he uh, he was a man uh, who was full of joy and happiness, and may have had less reason to be joyful and happy than anyone else at least by the standards we usually determine what makes us happy uh, Paul he lived by a different rule we'll discuss that directly uh, Solomon uh, we'll just let him go and stay with Paul for a minute in the Philippian letter this is the letter I'm talking about it's the happiest letter in all the Bible I think uh, it's Paul's letter of joy you know, the word sin doesn't even appear in Philippians. He's not talking about sin. He's not talking about bad. He has no interest in those things. He's, uh, he's feeling good, and he's wanting to pass along. And he's talking about times of rejoicing. Philippians 4 and 4, he said, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. The word rejoice and the word joy, they came from the same Greek word. They mean the same thing. And uh, the words uh, appear often throughout the Philippian uh, epistle. 
Linsky, uh, who's, uh, I think, I know, in my opinion, uh, the greatest uh, Greek Bible scholar of the 20th century. I don't know of anybody better than Linsky. He's a denominational scholar, but uh, when it comes to uh, interpreting or defining, I should say, the Greek New Testament, Linsky's uh, at the top of the list, no, without a doubt. He said divine joy is the theme of Philippians. The Greek word for joy, both noun and verb forms, appears more than a dozen times in four chapters. It doesn't take long to understand what Paul wants to talk about. The Christian's reason to be happy. We have reasons to be happy. We look around and we watch Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, they're all coming together, forming an access of evil, and we think, ooh, that's not good. We see so many things going on in the world right now, external and internal to this nation. And uh, it's saying, ooh, that's not good. There's a lot of things going on that we don't feel so good, makes us sad. Uh, we've, got, we've got families we, we're concerned with. Uh, we wonder what's gonna become of our children and of our grandchildren. There's so many things that run through our minds and it, it tends to drain us of any type of joy or happiness. Well, Paul, uh, I think the reason he wrote Philippians, at least one of the reasons, was to show us that regardless of uh, how dark the clouds are that gather around us, uh, there is a silver lining for the child of God. There is a reason to be happy. There's a reason to have hope. There's a reason to look for a better day coming. And uh, that's what I want to talk about for a few moments. Linsky went on to say, biblical joy is the settled conviction that God sovereignly controls, number one, the events of life for believers good, and number two, his own glory. And this is available to all who obey him. God is solely in charge. No one else is in charge but God. Other people's... Uh, Congresses, parliaments, whatever it may be. They can only do what they do because God permits them to do it. Now, because they do it, doesn't, that doesn't mean God made them do it. They choose to do something. God permits them. He allows them to do it. But the point to keep in mind is that God is always in control. It's always up to him. Uh, he has the yay and nay on every situation. And nobody can uh, do battle against God and be victorious. Well, we might see the devil's winning, somebody says. Well, it's only because the Lord's allowing him to win. There, there's, there's good reasons why he would do that sometimes. Uh, we don't have time to get into all that stuff. But there are good reasons that the Lord would have for allowing such things to happen, and he does, including our... Our, our difficult days, uh, our painful days, uh, our, our days of uh, 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 great agony, uh, these things have a reason for existing in the world in which we live. Uh, 
but the point that the believer has to hold on to is that God's will be done. It shall be done. Uh, we know he loves us. We know he knows who we are. In the book of Revelation, two, three, four times, the Lord makes sure that his people know that he brands them, he marks them, he identifies them. He puts his seal on them so that uh, we would know that he knows who we are. It's much like branding a cow. And uh, the rancher can see, well, that cow's mine. It's got my brand. Well, God can see the brand, and he knows we belong to him. That's for our sake, not his. But uh, knowing that and knowing that God is a sovereign ruler, he has all power and all authority, uh, we don't have to be afraid because whatever happens, whatever the outcome of what happens is, we know for us it's going to be okay because uh, the best is yet to come. It can only get better. No matter what happens, it can only get better. We may go down a notch for a while, but it's going to get better. We don't have to stay here forever. We're going to, we're going to get our release, and when we do... Uh, Sayonara, we're out of here. The circumstances of Paul and the Philippians would not be expected to produce joy and happiness according to most people. I think this is also true of religious people. I think if most religious people uh, lived through the life Paul lived through, I think uh, most would probably throw their hands in the air and quit. I see people get mad at God and quit for a lot less reason. If we had to go through what Paul did, uh, would we stand? Or would we endure? I don't know. Uh, God knows. I don't know. I've never been there before. But uh, I want to look at some of the things that Paul lived through and then uh, go back and look at uh, what he has to say about being joyful. He wrote Philippians, and at the time he wrote it, he was a prisoner in Rome. Rejoice, I say, and again, rejoice. He was in a dungeon in Rome, uh, not knowing what the outcome was going to be. Would Nero Caesar lift his head? He didn't know. He might. He might not. This was during his first imprisonment. Uh, we know now that he didn't. Paul was released from prison, but as far as Paul knew, he was going to have his head cut off. But uh, notwithstanding, he was still a happy man. And he was writing to the Philippians, telling them to be happy. Uh, and he didn't know uh, what the tomorrow held for him. He faced fierce and unrelenting opposition from both Gentile and Jewish groups uh, throughout the whole course of his ministry. Paul was very... Uh, very severe persecutor of the Church of Christ. Uh, he despised Jesus. Uh, he hated his church. He did everything in his power to try to destroy her. He was, uh, he was as mean as the day is long. He had no mercy on anybody. Man, woman, child, he could care less. If they professed to be a Christian, they were on his bad list. Well, that's the way he lived a certain number of years. 
And then all of a sudden, when he was converted and he followed Christ, it was the opposite. He became the persecutor, the hunted, the haunted. And as far as we know, he suffered more than any other apostle suffered. I don't know if that's true, but uh, as far as we know, he certainly did. In Damascus, they sought to kill him. He fled by being lowered from the city wall at night in a basket, constantly running for his life. He fled from Iconium in Acts 14, 5, and 6. He was beaten with stones and left for dead in the city of Lystra, Acts 14, 19, and 20. He was beaten and thrown in jail in Philippi in Europe when he first crossed over, Acts 16, 16 through 40. He fled from Thessalonica after his preaching touched off a riot, Acts 17, 5 through 9. He was also forced to flee Berea, Acts 17, 13, and 14. Greek philosophers mocked him when he was in the city of Athens. He was scared. He was terrified. And the Lord spoke to him there, and he said, Stop being afraid. You go out there and speak. And he did. But he was afraid of the philosophers because these were the wisest men in all of Greece. He stood before the Roman proconsul when he was in Corinth, Acts 18, 12 through 17. He faced Jewish opposition, Acts 19, 9, 20, 18, and 9. On every hand, the Jews hated him. He used to be a friend, now he's a traitor. And they were after Paul with a fierce passion. His life was horrible. He faced rioting Gentiles in the city of Ephesus because he had interfered with their income in selling their little shrines and trinkets to the goddess Diana. He prepared to sell from Greece to Palestine, but there was a Jewish plot against his life and it forced him to change his travel plans, Acts 20 verse 3. On his way to Jerusalem, he told the elders at Ephesus that he was bound in spirit. I am on my way to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying, Bonds and afflictions await me. Acts 20, 22. In Jerusalem, he was recognized in the temple by Jews from Asia Minor. They accused him of polluting the temple, which was not true. They said he took a Gentile, an uncircumcised person, into the temple, which he did not do. He was savagely beaten by the mob, and he was saved from certain death when Roman soldiers arrived on the scene and put him under arrest, Acts 21, 27 through 36. When they arrested him, that was going to be the beginning of a four-year incarceration. Now, here's a man who was planning on going to Rome. He was going to go back to Jerusalem, he was going to give the money to the poor saints in Judea, and then he planned on well, going up and visiting a church at Antioch and then going to Rome and seeing the saints there. But all of a sudden, his plans are put on hold, and he's got four years incarcerated in Rome, waiting, well, two years in Caesarea and two years in Rome. While he was in custody at Jerusalem, the Jews formed yet another plot against his life prompting the Roman commander to send him under heavy guard to the governor at Caesarea, 
the Jews were waiting, going to try to kill him as he passed. After his case dragged on without resolution for two years and two Roman governors, Paul exercised his right as a Roman citizen. He appealed to Caesar. Enough of this fooling around. I'm not fooling with you governors, you Jews, anymore. I'm appealing to Caesar. So uh, he kind of set his course in stone at that point. Once they appealed to Caesar, they had to let him appear before Caesar. That was according to Roman law. After an eventful trip, which included being shipwrecked in a violent storm, Paul finally arrived at Rome, Acts chapters 27 and 28. As Paul wrote the Philippian letter, he was now in his fourth year of incarceration, awaiting Emperor Nero's final decision in his case. What would he do? He didn't know. He didn't know whether he would live, whether he would die. Now, despite all that, Paul was obviously a very happy man. He wrote uh, the Philippian letter, and some 12 times he expressed his own happiness and encouraged the Philippians, who likewise suffered at the hands of uh, Christ's adversaries. He uh, encouraged them to be happy as well. How can you be happy when everything's going wrong? The tornado hit just the other day. What, 33 people were killed. How can people be happy when all this tragedy has surrounded us? I mean, how do we do it? How do we bounce back? How do we, how do we bounce back after our house burns down? How do we bounce back when we've got a child with a terminal illness? How do we sustain ourselves? How do we find happiness or contentment living under such adverse conditions? Is it possible? If it's not, then why are we told to do it? The only reason we're told to be happy, to be full of joy, is because it is possible and it will be done if we understand what it takes to find true happiness. Uh, I think a lot of us, I know I always, I always wanted another muscle car and I, oh, it was gonna make me so happy if I got my hands on it. Uh, and I got, a, I got three of them all together before it was over. And uh, I got one and boy, I wanted that car so bad. I got one at 72 Monte Carlo, I called it the Hitman. It was bad to the bone, black on black on black. Had that 454 Super Sport engine. I mean, it was king of the hill. And I was happy as a pig in mud. That probably lasted about six to nine months, I guess. And then I got the itch for a 67 Chevelle Supersport. Pow! If I had that 67 Chevelle, I'd be happy as I'll get out. I got it and it worked for a little while. Then there was a 69 Camaro. Oh man, if I had that. That's what makes us happy. We think, but we all know, you know, we're older here. We know better. We know that it only lasts for a little while. Uh, the, the shine wears off pretty quickly. And then we're back to wanting something else to make us happy once again. It may be uh, tickets to a UT game. 
Uh, it may be tickets to a Titan game. Boy, if I, I'm going to have a happy, happy day. And we do. From time to time, we have a happy Sunday. We go to Titans. We have a happy Saturday. We go to watch UT. Whatever the case may be, we find occasions of happiness from time to time. But, you know, they only last like this long. And that's one of the reasons why when trouble befalls us, you know, you got a, you got a, you got a 72 Monte Carlo and your house burns down and all of a sudden, what does that Monte Carlo mean? Absolutely nothing. When your house is gone, it means absolutely nothing. That which brought you so much joy cannot see you through a loss of a house. But those are the things we oftentimes rely on. And that's where we make our mistake. That's one of the reasons why we're never consistently happy or find contentment. Because sometimes we just put our eggs in the wrong basket and we don't, we don't get what we're looking for. Paul talked about this in Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. Uh, I don't remember exactly when it was, but I, I remember it dawning on me what he was saying in verse 11, uh, talking about you know necessities that he needed. Not that I speak in regard to need, he said, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I have learned, I have come into possession of knowledge. What's the implication? That means he didn't always have that knowledge. He didn't always know how to be content. He was just like the rest of us. You know, if he had tickets to the UT game, he was, he was happy. I mean, if he got a, a, a new chariot, he was, he was thrilled beyond belief. But it, it didn't last. It was passing. And it just didn't hang in there. But he said, I learned how to do it. I went from not knowing how to do it to knowing how to do it. There's a process I have learned in whatever state I am, no matter what my situation, whether a, a Roman prisoner or whether I'm there with you Philippians and the congregation on the Lord's day, I have learned to be content wherever I find myself. And there's keys that he teaches us that enabled him to get to that point. Now, it's something we have to practice. It doesn't come natural. It will not come natural. You gotta practice. You gotta train yourself to think this way. You gotta train yourself to focus on certain things. Like I said a moment ago, sometimes we focus on the wrong stuff. If we're focusing on the wrong stuff, that means we're not focusing on the right stuff. If we want to be content, regardless of what's going on around us, we've got to learn to focus on the right stuff. Those are the baskets we want to put our eggs in. Jesus said, lay up your treasures in heaven because nobody can take it from you there. You lay up your treasures here on the earth, you buy this and that and own this and that and possess this and that, it's not going to fly because you're either going to lose it up while you're in the world or you will certainly give it up when you leave the world. It is not yours. Yeah, Caden.
Of course it would. It's, it's <laughs> everything that we treasure here, uh, it has no place in heaven. It's, a, it, it's of this world. And the things that are of this world are transient. It, they don't last. They're, they're temporary. Uh, it's, it's like a little child. You know, sometimes a little shiny object catches their eye. That's the way we are. But like you said just a moment ago, you can't take it with you when you go. Uh, and if you could, it would be of no value whatsoever. What good is gold in heaven? What good is all the gold in the world in heaven? It means absolutely nothing. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a created item, whereas heaven is an eternal place. It's just not that way. Uh, we've got to learn to think the way the Lord has revealed the truth to us. Because there are truths that await us and if we don't understand truth then we're not going to add, understand something as simple as what you just said the fact that gold has zero value in heaven uh, when you understand a material world versus a spiritual place uh, then you can see that it's not compatible uh, but you've got to learn to think that way I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, to be squished, pushed down. I know how to abound, be lifted up. Whether pushed down or backwards or pushed up and exalted, I know how to behave myself under those circumstances. He wasn't too proud to be abased and being and abounding didn't make him proud. He still knew who he was. He never lost sight of reality. Paul didn't. Uh, and that's very, very important. Sometimes, you know, we get a little money and we exalt ourselves. We think, you know, you know, we're doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. And then just as easily as it came, it can go away. Uh, the person who knows the truth about a matter, he knows whether you're broke or whether you got all kinds of money. Uh, it's not what you have, it's who you are. That's all that matters. That's all that's going to matter in the end. God is sovereign ruler. If he likes you, he will know you. And if he doesn't care much for you, you're in a heap of trouble. Everywhere, in all things, I have learned. I have learned to be full and be hungry. I've learned to abound and to suffer need. Uh, he wasn't worried about where he found himself. You know, right now, they got all this nervousness in the world over who's going to emerge the superpower. Uh, what if it was China? So what? What are you going to do? You're going to shoot yourself? What are you going to do? You're going to get by. That's what you're going to do. You're going to get by. We all get by. No matter what comes. We'll pray. We pray always we pray. We pray that that doesn't happen too. 
And we keep praying that doesn't happen. But if it did, we go on living, trying to survive, no matter what the situation may be. Uh, knowing that God is a sovereign ruler and that we can persevere regardless of the circumstances. Circumstances are just circumstantial. It's uh, neither here nor there. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whether I'm abased or abound, I can do all things through Christ. Whether I'm full or hungry, abound or suffer need, I can do all things because Christ will give me my strength. No matter what I'm living through, he's saying, Christ will lift me up. And that's what he's doing. He relied on Christ all the time. He relied on Christ every day. He knew Jesus was right there with him. He knew Jesus was his helper. He knew that he was always going to love him. He was always going to be compassionate towards him. Jesus is always going to hurt when Paul hurts. Paul knows all those things. And he relies on that to find contentment in his life regardless of the external circumstances. That's why he could be in a Roman dungeon and still say rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Uh, he wasn't held back. Is it easy? No. It, it's Contrary to everything we know, everything we've been taught, go to school, make money, have a good life. I heard that all my life. And you know as well as I do, it just doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. <clears throat> but be prepared, no matter what the circumstances, to know the keys to happiness. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. That's one of the biggest little statements in all the Bible, I think. Godliness is having the right attitude toward God. Contentment is having the right attitude toward the world. Having the right attitude toward God, having the right attitude toward the world is great gain, Paul said. If you can do those two things, you can live a very profitable life, a very victorious life. If you can do that, sometimes, you know, people go to church and say, well, I, you know, I go to church, so, you know, that's the way I am. No, that's not the way we are. That's what we become when we learn how to be these, this way. In Philippians 3.20, Paul said our citizenship is in heaven. It's easy to have the right attitude toward the world, I should say easier, when we realize our citizenship is in heaven. Whenever I went to India, I was never, I, I, I never wanted to own anything over there. I never bought a car. I never wanted to own a house. There was, I didn't want any land. I didn't want anything in India. Uh, I was a visitor there. I was going to stay there for a little while, and I'm going to be digging them back to the United States because that's where my home is. Well, when we know and re understand that we are only visitors here and that our home is in heaven, then the things here become a lot less necessary. That doesn't mean we don't like stuff. We do. I like shiny stuff. 
but but it, it's not something I'm going to knock myself out to get anymore. It's not going to be that important to me. Our citizenship is in heaven, and this is one of the rules Paul lived by. And we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Wait for Christ to come. Today would be a good day for Christ to come. If there's tomorrow, then tomorrow will be a good day for Christ to come. I think every day of the week, I think, today is a good day for the Lord to come back. Every day, I, I, I really want to see Christ come back. I wish he would. I really wish he would. I, I just think it would be wonderful. And this is, I think, the way Paul felt as well. We brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. That's why we ought to be content with how little we have, because whatever you got, you're going to lose it anyway. Probably some dummy will take over your farm and he'll lose it in a poker game or something. Who knows what's going to happen to what we leave behind. Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. I think the American Standard Version is a little more clearer uh, in meaning uh, of this statement. Uh, it says having food and covering. Uh, some English versions have the word raiment, R-A-I-M-E-N-T which basically means covering. Uh, the King James Version has clothing. Well, covering is better because uh, a covering would be clothing. Clothing is a covering. Uh, a roof over your head is a covering. Uh, a shade gets you out of the sun is a covering. Uh, anything that covers us from the elements uh, is what the apostle is trying to impress upon his readers. Uh, having food and covering, food and housing, uh, we need to be content. But those, on the other hand, those who desire to be rich, those who desire to be rich, I think most of us uh, may have at least at one time uh, emphasized the word rich there, thinking that rich is bad. A rich person is a bad person. You can't be a rich person unless you're an evil person. Uh, that's not what Paul's saying here. I've emphasized the word desire because that's where the problem is. The problem isn't in wealth. You could have a uh, $100 million and be one of the world's greatest benefactors of all. Uh, if you had your head screwed on right with that kind of money, you could help a, a lot of people uh, who need help uh, with those type of resources. Uh, in that case, you would be uh, a great aid to people around you. It's the desire to be rich. What will you do in order to be rich? That's what's under consideration. Those who desire to be rich, they fall into uh, they trip up. You're desiring to be rich and looking for the, the gold that's in front of you. You tumble over into a pit because you never look down to see where you're going. All you got on your mind is that pot of gold. You fall into temptation, uh, a lure, uh, like a fishing lure. Uh, when when uh, you fish and you throw uh, a minnow or something out there, 
You want that fish to see that minnow kicking around and you hope he'll bite on it. Uh, that's the temptation, the lure, that which allures us. It may be a, a, a beautiful woman or a beautiful man. It may be a 72 Monte Carlo. It could be all kinds of things that might be a lure, something that's a temptation to us. Uh, you may fall into it and you may be ensnared by it when the fish clamps down on the minnow. Uh, it's, it's caught in the snare, the trap, the hook, and uh, it goes into the bucket. And also into many, many foolish lusts and many harmful lusts. When you desire to be rich, all these pitfalls are now in front of you. Any one of them you may find yourself getting caught up in. He didn't want to. He didn't plan on it. He didn't think you would. I think I'm smart enough. I can avoid all those pitfalls. Well, according to Paul, you're not going to. You'll find yourself in a mess before you know what happened. These, these foolish and harmful lusts drown men. Drown. That's, you die. When you drown, you're dead. Well, he talks about two types of death. First, destruction. That's death of the flesh. And then he talks about perdition. That's the death of the soul. <clears throat> These many foolish and harmful lusts, they will kill both flesh and soul if you have a desire for them and you pursue them with too much, uh, too much of yourself. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money. It's the desire to be rich. The love of money. It's what's in the heart. It's not money. It's not gold. It's not stuff. It's what's in the heart, whether desire or love for. For which some have strayed from the faith, wandered off from the faith, because they're greedy and they wanted to lay hands on it. How many people do we read about in the Bible who strayed from the faith because they loved the world and the things that are in the world? Remember Demas? Demas loved the world and he strayed away from Paul and the work that they were engaged in. Judas Iscariot strayed away and they pierced themselves through with many sorrows we see Judas hanging, and we realize how destructive this desire, this love for riches actually is. But you, O oh man of God, you've seen what others have done, but you, on the other hand, flee these things. What mammon? Flee your love for wealth, your love for the things of the world. Run from it. Teach yourself not to just drool over this stuff. And pursue instead righteousness, uh, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. <clears throat> Contending earnestly for the gospel, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Lay hold on eternal life. Set your sights on eternal life. And don't stop until you've got it in your grasp to which you were called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In Hebrews 13 and 5, the author said, let your conduct be without covetousness. 
be content with such things as you have. You notice without covetousness, that's godliness, and being content is with contentment. This is what Paul has said back in Timothy. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We'll stop now. I just had to do that. I had a lot more to say. I need to learn to talk faster. <laughs>